Well, go ahead and get your Bibles out. Uh, turn to John chapter 12. Uh, we are taking a break from our series in Acts, uh, today being Palm Sunday. Uh, and we'll be looking at some of the events uh, in, in the life of Jesus leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection that we celebrate next week on Easter Sunday. So go ahead and open up John chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 12 through 43 this morning. Uh, but something that's really important for all of you to know about me, uh, it's very important to me, is that I love hamburgers. Okay? And, and that's, no, that's no joke. I love, I love hamburgers. Okay? And I also love all-you-can-eat buffets. And now when I just said all you can eat, half of you that weren't looking at me just looked at me, right? Because <laughs> we all love all you can eat buffets. But uh, when, I was, when I was about 18 or 19 or so, uh, I went to this all you can eat buffet where, um, you know, they had a ton of different foods and there was this, this hamburger that just looked fantastic. And uh, so I, I grab it, I put it on my tray and go, go back to the table and and I'm, I'm getting ready to eat this hamburger. It, it, was, it had just come off the grill. It looked delicious. I take a bite of it and just, what is that? It was not a hamburger. It was a giant portobello mushroom sandwich. <laughs> but it, it had been grilled, so it looked like a hamburger. And here, here's the thing. That sandwich actually would have tasted probably pretty good had I known what it was. But because I was expecting something totally different, my experience with that sandwich was not a good one. Right? My, because I had a certain expectation and that expectation was not met, my experience was totally altered. Okay? And so that's, that's what we're going to see play out with a lot of the people in Jerusalem in John chapter 12 this morning is this notion of having an expectation of something and that, that expectation not being met and it affecting the whole situation. But to kind of paint a, a picture of what I'm talking about with the expectation that the people had, um, you, we have to understand a few things about the history of Israel. Uh, Israel was a, a nation that had God as their king, but they came uh, to Samuel in, in the book of 1 Samuel and said, we want a king like all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else, so give us a king. And, and so God said, if that's what they want, then okay. Uh, and Saul became their king and, and was pretty much a huge disappointment. But then King David came up, a man after God's own heart who who, uh, though he did have his own faults, was overall a, a king who loved God. And God promised David that he would have a, a, an heir forever on the throne. Okay, there would be someone from David's line who would reign on the throne forever. But the problem was, all the kings that followed David just more and more and more kind of circled the drain, uh, leading the people away leading Israel to worship false gods. And, and so essentially, God said, okay, you want to you wanna worship the gods of other nations? Then you can go serve other nations, and I'm sending you into exile. And then Israel was in exile for 70 years, and then when they came out of exile, they came back to their land. They were in their land again, but it wasn't the same because they weren't their own nation anymore. They were under the rule of another kingdom. 
And at this time, God sent more prophets to Israel where they, they told Israel that a Messiah was coming who would save them and free them. And so the people of Israel are sitting there going, okay, we're under the rule of Persia, so we're going to be freed from their rule. And then the Greeks came and conquered the Persians, and then Israel was under the rule of Greece, and then the Romans came and conquered the Greeks, and so now Israel's under the rule of Rome. And all the while, they're sitting there going, where is this Messiah who's going to set us free from these oppressive kingdoms? Where is our new king? Where is the king that God promised David that would lead us and, and be our king? And so that's the expectation that, that Israel was waiting for hundreds of years to be filled. It was this king who would come and set them free and rule. And so uh, I'm going to read verses 12 through 43, and then we'll, uh, we'll walk through all of it together. Starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, 
that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Uh, let's go ahead and start uh, with a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll begin. Lord Jesus, we come to you right now uh, just so thankful that we can gather in your name. It's because of you, it's because of the cross, and, and because of who you are and, and what you did. Lord, not just that you died, but that you rose again, that we can be here. It is in you that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it's because of you that, that we can grow in our knowledge uh, and in our love of you. So Lord, just as we pray every week I, uh, for another church, I, I want to pray for uh, Pastor Skip Heitzig and uh, Calvary Church here in Albuquerque. Lord, please bless uh, bless the, the teaching at Calvary Church this morning. Bless the worship be among the people where they would draw near to you and give you the worship and the honor that you deserve as being our King, Lord. And, and now as we come to your word, Lord, please move in our hearts by the power of your Spirit. Lord, please don't let us leave here the same as we walked in, but please... Lord, help us to leave here changed, ready to live lives for you, seeking to honor you more and glorify you more in how we live. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Amen. Okay, so the first thing that we see... Um, with the scene here in Jerusalem, is we see the, the expectations of the people. Okay, the, the expectations of the people come out right up front. See in, in verses 12 through 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took up branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Okay, so palm trees at this time would be used, if a, if a, a king was entering or something, it, they would be used as a sign of victory or of peace, okay, but often associated with royalty. Okay, and, and the people are crying out, Hosanna, which is the, the transliteration of a Hebrew word which means God saves or God, God will save us. Okay? And and the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is pointing back to Psalm 118. 
And so all of these things coming together are, are essentially all these people saying, this is our king. This is the guy. This is the Messiah who was promised to us. He's coming in. He's going to rule. Everything's going to be good. See, he's even fulfilling prophecy about the Messiah. In verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now that's actually from Zechariah chapter 9, where he says in, in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then just a few verses later, in verse 16, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Okay, so the people have have this understanding of the Messiah that's coming. They have prophecy literally being fulfilled right in front of their eyes as Jesus is riding in on this donkey. They are signifying his royalty in their eyes by using palm branches. They're shouting out psalms that, that would remind people of King David. Jesus has performed signs and miracles. All the signs point to this is the guy. This is him. This is the king who's coming to set us free. The proof was right in front of them, but the problem is their expectation was wrong. Because, like we talked about earlier, they were looking for a political ruler, a actual political king who would overthrow the government that was over them and would establish a, the nation of Israel again. They were looking for their physical nation and delivery from the political entity of Rome, not something greater. So the next thing that we see is there are three groups of people that are present here. And we see three different responses. So the first group is the disciples. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the good news is the disciples figured it out later. Okay, so that's the good news. But the problem is right now, they don't get it. They don't see what's really going on. They don't see the connection that Jesus is much more than an earthly king. The second group that we see is the crowds. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Okay, so the crowds are there, and they're crying out, and they're, they're seeing him as the Messiah, but the problem is that they're there because of all the signs and wonders that he did. They came because of the things he had done. Not necessarily because of who he was, but because of the, the, the signs and wonders that he did. So their perspective was flawed. But then the third group that we see is the, is, uh, the Pharisees. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It's no secret in the Gospels that the Pharisees did not like Jesus very much at all. 
They were the ones plotting to have him killed. They were the ones that were constantly trying to catch him in his words. And the reason is the Pharisees were seen as the religious elite, the ones who had it all figured out. They were the ones that you looked to for an example of how to honor God and how to follow God. I mean, these guys had legalism down to the most precise science you possibly could. But Jesus would expose them for their legalism and show, you guys totally missed the point. You know so much stuff, but you totally missed it. Right? And so the Pharisees resented Jesus. And I don't know if you, you've ever been really frustrated by something to the point that it causes you to exaggerate like way over the top. And like, I, I had to go to the dentist and get a cavity filled. It cost like $20,000. And somebody looks at you and is like, come on. A little bit of an exaggeration, right? That's essentially what the Pharisees are doing here. They're so frustrated that Jesus is, that more and more people are following Jesus and Jesus' ministry is continuing to go forward, even in the face of all their opposition, that they're like, the whole world's going after him. When that wasn't really the case at that time, but they were just so frustrated. But the, the really disappointing thing for the Pharisees is that they knew their Bible. Yeah, they knew it. They had the entire Old Testament memorized. They knew these prophecies. And when Jesus came riding in on that donkey, those Pharisees went, oh no. That's the guy. That's him. The last guy that we would have wanted to be the Messiah. And there he is. The proof is right in front of them. And they reject him. Because they don't want it. Because their expectation of who he was going to be was not met. And so they didn't want who he actually was. Okay, all of these, the, all three of these groups and all of their responses are in one way or another lowering the expectation of who Jesus is, reducing the person of Jesus to something lower than what he actually was. And what he actually is. And so what we see next is that wrong expectations lead to unbelief. Now I'm going to have to summarize a few things uh, from verse 20 through 36 just for the sake of time. But we'll, we'll focus in on a couple of particulars in here. The, the first, uh, in verses 20 through 26, is some Greeks come to Jesus. And this is before the, the gospel went out to the Gentiles. And so this is a significant moment that people who are not Jews are coming to Jesus. And Jesus' response to them is, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Right? Claiming Jesus as, as a, a, an easy way to forgiveness or be, claiming to be a Christian as merely a title doesn't cut it. She's like, if you, if you want to... If you want to serve me, you have to follow me. If you want to claim to be my follower, your life needs to resemble that fact. It's not the, the, the works or the actions that save you, but there should be some kind of evidence of salvation in your life. If you claim to follow me in some way, that should be apparent. But then we see in verses 27 through 36 that the, the, the true motives of the people are really exposed. Jesus says in verse 32, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
So Jesus is foreshadowing here for everyone that he's going to be lifted up on a cross. He's going to die, be buried, resurrected, and he's going to ascend up to heaven. Here we see all that play out in the rest of the book and then in the beginning of Acts. But then the people respond, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Okay, so the people that were just saying, this is our guy, this is the Messiah, this is the King, when Jesus starts talking about being lifted up, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not going anywhere, Jesus. You're, you're going to rule. You're going to set us free. You're going to be our King. So clearly, you're not talking about yourself. Who is this Son of Man that's going to be lifted up? Because it's not you, because you are not going anywhere. But what's, what's interesting about the fact that they say, who is this son of man? Is that the son of man was the most common name that Jesus used to refer to himself throughout the Gospels. And so the people should have been aware that he was talking about himself because that was how he referred to himself most often. But the idea that he was not the political leader that they were looking for was unacceptable. Jesus, you're not going anywhere. So somebody else is going to be lifted up. Somebody else is going to be dying. Somebody else is going away. You need to meet our expectations. You need to do what we want you to do. So he goes on and he says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. See, they, because Jesus didn't meet their expectations, they were done. Okay, you're, you're not who I want you to be. You're not, you're not what I thought you were going to be. You're not going to give me the freedom that I was looking for. Give me the life that I wanted. We're done. I don't believe in you anymore. Instead of, instead of submitting to who he was and letting Jesus dictate the reality of his identity, who he was and what he came to do, instead the people tried to dictate to Jesus who he was and what he should have come to do, and when he didn't do it, said he was wrong. And we do the same thing today. We do the same thing today when we say, No, Jesus, you shouldn't want this for my life. You should want me to do this because it's what I want. Now, Jesus, that's not who you are because that doesn't fit with my worldview. That doesn't fit with how I understand things. Right? Instead, we try to tell God what is and isn't true instead of letting him tell us what is and isn't true. But John then goes on and, and alludes to a few passages from the Old Testament where he says, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled... Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Here's something you, have, you need to understand about Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah was arguably the most faithful prophet in the Old Testament. He was given a commission by God to preach the word of God for decades, constantly. God said, 
They will hear, but they won't understand. They will see, but they won't perceive. You're going to preach, and you're going to preach, and you're going to preach, and no one's going to repent. No one's going to repent. And Isaiah said, well, how long am I supposed to do that? And God said, until I lay everything to waste and send these people into exile. The most unfruitful ministry was carried out by the most faithful prophet. And so you have to ask yourself, why would anybody do that? What would compel someone to be that faithful to spend decades preaching a message that was never received? Well, to to get an idea of this, we should turn back to where uh, this passage comes from. So turn over to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, we'll just be in the first, first five verses. So he starts, Isaiah 6, 1. He starts by saying, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And stop right there. The, the kind of wording of that verse is really important. Because he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, the way that those words are set up, that could be translated, in the year that the ruler, Uzziah, died, I saw the master sitting on the throne. Or it could also be, in the year that, that King Uzziah died, little king, I saw the true king, right? the one great king seated on the throne. Yeah. Isaiah is purposefully juxtaposing the, the earthly king and the almighty king next to each other. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was so faithful to the call of God because he saw God right in front of him. He beheld an image before his eyes that was so great, right, that that just seeing it, he's like, I'm undone. I can't handle this. This is overwhelming. He saw the king, and that compelled him to be faithful in his ministry. Now, what we need to notice, though, back in John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verse 41, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's John talking about? Who's John talking about in chapter 12? Jesus. 
John is writing about Jesus. He's saying that Isaiah said these words because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John's saying, hey, you remember back in Isaiah when Isaiah saw God sitting on his throne? That was Jesus. That was Jesus sitting on his throne. See, because God told, God told Moses, no one can see me and live. And that was why God allowed his, his glory to pass by him versus allowing Moses to actually see his face. He's like, you, you can't see me and live. And so how could Isaiah have seen God, right? It, it was Jesus because you could see Jesus. See, the, the whole thing is John's pointing back saying, hey, Hey, Jesus is not just an earthly king. Jesus was not just a guy that was going to come overthrow the Romans. Jesus is God. And, and people would, would look at Isaiah and be like, well, wait, I thought he was talking about God. So he's talking about Jesus or is he talking about God? And the answer is yes. It's, it's, the same, it's one and the same, right? Because God has revealed himself in his word as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A triune God. One in essence, three in substance. It's, it's a mystery. Don't expect me to explain it perfectly because we are finite beings trying to understand an infinite God. So there's a point where the way that God exists in a trinity is difficult to understand. But the fact of the matter is, it's how he revealed himself to us in his word. But John is trying to get us to see, hey, He is not just an earthly king. He is not just some guy riding on a donkey who's going to die for your sins. He is God who came down from heaven and took on flesh to live a perfect life, to then die for our sins, to then raise from the dead and ascend back to heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of power. And too often what we do is we do the same thing that the people in Jerusalem did and try to draw Jesus down to a lower level, make him less than what he really is, instead of just acknowledging who he truly is. When I was in college, and and I'm sure they, they may still do it, but people wore these shirts that were just, they were just infuriating to me because they... They would say, Jesus is my homeboy. (laughs) And like, you know, they thought they were being cool and whatever, but it's like, he's not your homeboy. He's your God. He's your king. You know, regardless of what you think of the president, if he were to walk through the doors, I doubt you would walk up to him and say, hey, Barry, what's going on? Right? You would not disrespect him in such a way, but you would show him the respect that his title deserves. Hello, Mr. President. In your mind, you're probably thinking something else, but... <laughs> right? Regardless, you, you give the honor and respect that the title and position deserves. And, and so often people paint this picture of Jesus like he's, like he's still sitting on the donkey and like he's given the wink and the gun like, Hey, guys, I'm your buddy. But this, that's not where he is. He's in heaven, sitting on the throne. The image that Isaiah had of Jesus is the image that we would have of Jesus if we were to see him right now. Where instead of our response to him being, oh yeah, Jesus, he died for my sins. 
it would be, My eyes have seen the king, and my life will be lived in response to what I am beholding with my eyes right now. See, when we, the way that we perceive Jesus will determine how we respond to him. The way that we perceive Jesus will determine how we respond to him. If I try to lower him down to something lesser than what he is, I will treat him in kind by not giving, giving him the honor he deserves. But if I will recognize that he is, he is my king, he is my God, he is my Lord, he is my Savior, he is all of those things then I will respond by worshiping him rightly. But when I will stand and call it worship to stand with my hands in my pockets, checking my watch, looking at my phone, talking to the person next to me while we sing songs to the creator of the universe, I have not seen the king. If I will let my relationships burn to the ground because I refuse to humble myself and reconcile myself to those around me or reconcile within my marriage and instead I want to just hold on to the sin in my life, I have not seen the king. If I will refuse to change in light of the call of Jesus because I care more about what I want from life, then my eyes have not seen the king. Where instead we should look at him and say, because of all that you are, because of how great you are, Lord, help me to see you so that I can respond rightly to you. Help me to know who you truly are so that I can worship you rightly. But when we don't do that, we're, we're no different than the people in verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne and said, you can keep everything else. You can keep success. You can keep everything you could ever want me to have. I'm going to be faithful because my eyes have seen the king. Right? And, he, and he carried out one of the most faithful ministries in the history of the world because his eyes had seen the king. But when we become so wrapped up in what I want to do and how I want my life to be and, and all the things that I want to be concerned with, the glory of man instead of the glory of God, our eyes have not seen the king. And I think a lot of times, me and, and Pastor Mike and Pastor Randy talked about this a little bit, where a lot of times we will uh, just kind of rush out of the end of the message into worship. Not on purpose, but it just feels that way sometimes. Where instead we should come to a place where we recognize, I need to let this sink in. I need to let this reality invade my heart. I need to evaluate where I am and who I am in light of who Jesus is and what he's done and let that drive us then into worship. We need to respond rightly to who Jesus is. 
He is our king and not, not an earthly king who is going to give us temporary freedom. He is our heavenly king who has for all eternity freed us from sin and death and given us eternal life in him. And we need to respond to him in a way that says, thank you. You are incredible and I just want to worship you. If you have never given your life to Jesus, uh, let me tell you, there is nothing more important than you coming to that place right now. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, because he claimed to be God, so if he is who he said he is, there is nothing more important than you deciding to follow him. And so I would encourage you right now, if that's you, to, to come to the place where you say, Jesus, I need you to forgive me. I recognize that you are my king, that you paid for my sins with your own life. Lord, take my life. But for all of us right now, uh, as Pastor Randy is going to come up and, and just play a little bit of music in the background, but we should spend a few minutes in prayer where we ask God to show us how we have brought Jesus down, how we have reduced his identity in our life, how we have not given him the worship and honor that he deserves, and how we can repent of that and have God lead us to a right response of who he is and a right worship for all that he's done. So let's take a few minutes uh, and just quietly pray.